Psalm 113 begins with expressions of God's transcendency. He dwells in a high and exalted place, and we're told that he bows to view the heavens and the earth. This concept is not at first an encouraging notion for human beings. The thought of God peering in on our lives exposes those things that we would rather keep hidden and far from his view. But God sees all, and God knows all. So where do we find comfort before this holy God who stoops to take our lives into consideration? Welcome everyone, this is the Bread of Life. I'm Joel Van Hoogen, and I'm the Bible teacher at the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. I'm also the Executive Director of the International Outreach and Disciple-Making Ministry, Church Partnership Evangelism. To learn more about our ministries, go to breadoflifeboise.org. As well, we have a new ministry we want to make available to you, a website, www.savingevangelicals.com, and with it, a new book by the same title. God's Word challenges those who call themselves Christians to test themselves to see if they're in the faith. Jesus warned that many before his throne would discover that their assumptions of salvation were wrong, and he'll say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you. I want you and those you love to have a solid assurance of saving faith. This book and this website are designed to guide a person into a biblical confidence in salvation, and it's meant to undermine any false confidence. Again, go to savingevangelicals.com to learn more and to order the book by the same name. Now back to that last half of Psalm 113. There we discover that the God who bows to see all also bows to reach beneath us and draw us from the dust up to himself. This is the story of our Savior and the reason for his coming. All of your actions, there's nothing that is lost from his sight and he has stooped down this transcendent God to see all these things and if you only consider it that far, It ought to be a rather frightening concept. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, that the soul that sins shall surely die. And we have to ask ourselves, what has God seen in me when he has stooped down to view the heavens and the earth? What the Bible tells us he has seen is he has seen this reality, that all have sinned and fallen. Fallen short of the glory of God. Now, if you understand that, and you feel the impress of that reality, which men do. By the way, the Holy Spirit doesn't allow men to forget this notion. The Bible tells us that men suppress the knowledge of God and unrighteousness, and the reason they suppress it is they cannot exist in any level of comfort knowing what God sees and what God knows of them. And so they have to push God's existence from their life. I oftentimes say, and I didn't, it's not original with me, I remember receiving it, hearing it from my father, that no individual can sin looking God in the face. You see a little child who's doing something naughty, we've had our children do this before, they've been doing something naughty, and they don't think to remove themselves from our presence, but they remove us from their minds. They'll take their little cubby arms and they'll throw it across their eyes and they'll continue to do the naughty thing. I think somehow, as long as our hand is here and they can't see us, that we can't see them and very infantile, and it's just the way infantile man is before the transcendent God who sees everything. God sees it all, and God knows it all, and he weighs it all, and he sees our sins. Because men are uncomfortable with this notion, they come up with various ideas. Uh, And you'll understand why they do it, because it's the best they can come up with. They come up with this idea that God is somewhat of an uninterested bystander within his creation. They would prefer to consider him as the Greeks did, and many pagan minds do, that God is this 
disinterested and disengaged individual who has not the time to waste on puny lives like ourselves. We provide ourselves with the only comfort we can by saying that God doesn't see, God doesn't care, God is too big to concern himself with me and my life. He doesn't hear my thoughts. He doesn't hear my oaths. He doesn't see my sins because all of that is too insignificant and unimportant to him. Men tell themselves those types of things all the time. It's just not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that God, the transcendent God, is bending in to see everything and knows everything. And he condescends to view our lives, our sinful lives. And again, so far, no comfort in that. No comfort in that idea at all. From that high place, he reaches further than that. He lowers himself even more than just to see us. But there is no hope. There's no beauty. There's no artistic relief in the notion that God sees us. There's no spiritual relief in it either. A humble life is a hopeless life if God only stoops to see it. If the transcendent God only stoops to see it, we have no hope But God must stoop lower still in order that we would have hope in this notion. And so the psalmist progresses in his thought in verses 7 and 8. He says this. This transcendent God who condescends to see the heavens and earth, he says, raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap that he may seat him with princes and with the princes of his people. And... Right there in the Psalms, we have, I believe, a prophetic word of anticipation regarding the coming and mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of God has come to take us out of the ash heap of our sins and out of the ash heap of our death and to lift us up to be princes and priests with God and to set us with himself to reign. You remember when John the Baptist was in prison, he sent his disciples to the Lord Jesus to ask if he was the Christ or should he look for another. And the Lord Jesus gave an answer to him. It's found in Matthew chapter 11, verses 4 and 5. And this is what the Lord Jesus said. Go tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel or good news preached to them. He raises the poor out of the dust. He lifts the needy out of the ash heap, or as the old King James says, the dunghill, that he may seat him with princes and with the princes of his people. Ever since God told Eve in the middle of the curse for the sin that she and her husband had committed, that her child, the woman's child, would one day crush the head of the serpent who had tempted people and led them into their sin and led them into the place of death and ruin, There has been in every woman a hope that her child would be the one who would place its foot upon the head of the one who had brought them under this curse. There's always been a sense that redemption was on its way, some redeeming moment when a child is born, and Eve thought that was going to happen when Cain came. Remember, Eve said, I've gotten me a man. Here is the man. We find out later on that wasn't the man, but... That hope that sprung up in Eve springs up in every mother, and it was a hope that was fully realized in Mary. In between Eve and Mary, there were other mothers who had that hopeful expression and desire as well, and one of them was Hannah. Hannah was barren. Hannah had been given a promise that she would have a son. She brought forward a son by the name of Samuel, who became a great prophet. But when the promise came to her, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, and verses 7 and 8, I want to read you, 
she broke forth in a song, just like we see and we read the Magnificent of Mary when Mary breaks forth in song, when she realizes and a prophecy is made over her that she is bearing the Messiah. Hannah sings this song. She says, No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more very proudly and let no arrogance come from your mouth for the Lord is the God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. God, she is saying, is beyond anything you can frame with words. Anything that you arrogantly think somehow captivates or captures him in essence and reveals him to ourselves. The Lord, she says, makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set him among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. And young Mary, when she hears that she is bearing the Messiah and receives the prophecy from her cousin Elizabeth, breaks forth with a song that has probably been stirring in her heart since the moment she had been greeted by that angel announcing the birth of the Messiah and the coming of him him to her. And She says this, she rejoices and says this, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's raised us up to the throne. So this is it. The transcendent God, now this is what you have to have in your mind, in your view, when you consider and gather in and understand why it is you have hope and why you have a sense of peace and comfort when you look at the humble setting of the shepherds by the flocks or this poor mother and father in a manger where they've brought forth a newborn child. It's this, the transcendent God condescends to see us in our sin and then descends to lift us from them. He descends to lift us from them. With that in mind, you now can consider the Christmas story. Because this is the story of Christmas. This is the hope of the manger scene. This is what makes this humble scene fill us with hope and peace. There the transcendent God sees our sins and is descending to lift us from those sins. There God has become a man. He's come in the flesh. He's abandoned and emptied himself of all majesty and expressive transcendent majesty. All of this to take our sins away. He, the holy other God, has come to be born a lamb in a lambing place to suffer for our sins. And there in the manger scene, God is reaching beneath us, reaching into the ashes of our burned out lives to draw us to himself. And this is how it is. In order to lift anyone, you must reach beneath them. And so God lifts you and I. Jesus came all the way to the depths of our sin's guilt, into the ashes of our death, in order to lift us up into the life of the transcendent God. Paul Harvey told the story of an unbelieving man who was married to a believing wife. It was Christmas Eve and she left to go to the Christmas Eve service, but he remained home alone. And while he was home alone, a cold front blew in. Such a a tremendous change in the weather that it threatened to freeze everything that was outside. And a flock of birds began to slam against the picture window of the house, trying to come in and find the comfort and warmth of the home. And in pity, this husband, wanting to somehow find a way to rescue these birds, 
stepped outside the home, went to his barn, opened wide the barn doors, lit the lamps inside the barn, and then in some way, in vain, he, he attempted to try to scare the birds away and, and rush them in towards the barn where they could go inside the barn and find safety and be protected from the storm that was coming upon them. But they wouldn't respond. He, he couldn't get them to go in the direction he wanted them to go, and he found himself thinking a thought that changed his life. He thought, if only I could become a bird, I could lead them to safety. And so it is that God, the transcendent God, who is beyond all imaginings, and condescends to see us in our suffering and our sin, being overwhelmed in the storm of that sin, has descended and become a man to lead us to safety. Now, keep that in mind. And consider the scenes of the Christmas story. Understand why they're humble settings and their artistic renderings of homely places and homely things reminds you of peace and rest and comfort. Look at the manger scene or consider those poor pathetic shepherds and marvel at the beauty of that place in that moment because God is just about to break in. Just before the angels begin to sing, whisper to yourself, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. I want to direct you now to a different website at the end of our broadcast than I usually do. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 commands that the Christian test themselves to see if they're in the faith. In answer to this command, and with the desire to bring Christians into a sound and true assurance of saving faith, we've developed a website and a book for this purpose. Go to savingevangelicals.com and take the test and order the book by the same name, Saving Evangelicals. I can't think of a more important book for our day. Again, thanks for listening to The Bread of Life. Until the next time, may God bless you.